0: I invite you to open up to 1 Thessalonians, which will be in your New Testaments. Hope you brought your Bible. Um, if you didn't, you might be able to find one in a seat near you, or find an online version of the Bible on your phones. We're going to read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So if you're thumbing through your Bible four gospels of the new testament and acts and romans first first second corinthians then you get to these four small books galatians ephesians philippians colossians i remember the order by ge power company galatians ephesians philippians colossians finally you get to first thessalonians after colossians if you're looking for it starting with And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's not too many Sundays until we get to Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is wrapping up this look at the entire storyline of the Bible in one year. And as we get closer to the end of that storyline, what we're focusing on is the way of following Jesus for the very First, followers of Christ. They were known as followers of the way. There's a way of following Christ that we are talking about throughout the season of Lent, and we're choosing one word each Sunday that uniquely describes the way of following Jesus. Last week, that word was unity. Jesus prays for unity in his church. And not just any kind of unity. He prays that... The church, the followers of Christ, would be one, in Jesus' words, just as and he's praying to the Father, Father, you and I are one. That, that degree of unity, Jesus asked for his followers. So the way of following Jesus is the way of unity. And the word for today is vision. The way of following Jesus is a way of vision. Now, let me talk about that. What is vision? Vision is, is that which keeps you moving in one direction. Vision keeps you on a certain path, even when circumstances in life or other voices in life suggest that a different path is the correct one. So, in other words, having vision is looking towards the future, seeing by faith where the future is headed, and, and making sure you stay on that path towards that vision, changing your living in the present because of that future vision. Now, we just recited, we just confessed the Apostles' Creed. Why did we do that? Well, we are now in the habit of doing that on the first Sundays of the month, Communion Sunday. But more than just that, see the ancient creed was originally used when people were baptized, when Christians, believers were baptized. Baptism is that moment when a person says, I believe in Jesus Christ as a Savior of mankind and my Savior, and I want to die to myself. This is what the ancient Christians believed when they were confessing the Apostles' Creed at their... Or, okay, so I haven't got that part. They say the Apostles' Creed at their baptism. Um, but they... When they were baptized, they were saying, I, um, I want to die to myself just as Christ died on the cross so that he could give me eternal life. And in dying to myself, I'm going to live for Christ. It is now Christ that is living in me. This is what they were believing at their baptism. Now, that is vision. And as I just mentioned, they would, re- they would confess the Apostles' Creed as they were baptized, to help move them, keep them, moving towards this vision of dying to Jesus Christ, living for him, and going towards Christ's future for the people of Christ, the family of God, the church. And there were many things that could derail a Christian in those ancient times from staying on that path. How about persecution for one? When being a Christian was in many times against, seen as against the state, the state, the, the, the Roman empire and a Christian that you know, wasn't uniform throughout the centuries of the Roman Empire, but in certain times, in certain places, there was fierce persecution of Christians. They could be thrown in jail or confessing their faith in Christ, they could have all of their possessions taken from them, and they could be killed. They could be executed. So persecution could be something that potentially would get a Christian off of the path of following Christ. Um, Family members who weren't Christians could have derailed you if you were one of those ancient Christians. Maybe a Christian today. Family members who weren't Christians, as they would say, Why would you worship this Jesus Christ? When we've been worshiping our state gods, the gods of Rome, the gods of ancient Greece for centuries, why make this change? I could veer a Christian off the path of following Christ. And how about disappointment in life? How about when life got tough and fear set in? And so at baptism, a Christian would confess the Apostles' Creed to state, this is what I believe. This is my vision for my life. My life is following Jesus Christ and following Christ to that future that Jesus is leading us towards. And how does the Apostles' Creed end? We believe in the communion of saints, the communion of saints. You'll notice that Paul writes about these things in this passage from 1 Thessalonians. The communion of saints, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We confess the creed because it's easy to get derailed. And we need to keep reminding ourselves this is what we believe. So in this passage from 1 Thessalonians, Paul clarifies something really important that we believe in, and that is that Jesus is going to return back to the world in person. That's what Paul writes about in this text. And apparently the the dominant viewpoint of the very early Christians was that Jesus was going to return very soon. Very soon. See, remember when the, the 12 disciples see Jesus... After his resurrection, lifted up into the heavens. So it's found in Acts chapter 1, this, this little story of Jesus ascending into heaven. He's talking with his disciples, and he gives them some final instructions. And then they see him lift into the air and get hidden behind clouds, and the disciples are just staring up into the clouds because, of course, that's what you would do in that moment. Of course, you would just be standing up. Where did he go? And then all of a sudden, two angels tell his disciples, why do you stand here looking up in the sky? This same Jesus, this is, actually, I think I have the scripture on a, on a slide, Daniel Acts 1, verse 11. Uh, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go up into heaven. Now, they don't say when it will happen. But people back then thought, well, since these angels are giving us this, this reminder that Jesus is going to come back, it probably will happen pretty soon. But then time passed, and Jesus hadn't returned. Twenty years passed. An entire generation passed. And some family members of Christians, um, they, they died. Friends died. Spouses died. Children died. Her parents died. But Jesus is coming back. And he's going to come and build his everlasting kingdom. He's going to restore everything. And so these Christians in Thessalonica were worried about their loved ones who have already died. Are they going to miss out on this, on this big return of Jesus, this big party of Jesus restoring his, his kingdom in the world? And they were troubled And Paul writes to give them hope in the scripture. So I want to go through three ways that Jesus' return gives us hope. And the first one is this the second coming of Christ is our hope for resurrected physical bodies. Resurrected physical bodies. Paul says, Your loved ones who have died, they're going to be the first ones to experience the party. They're not going to miss out, they're going to be the first ones to experience Jesus restoring all things, they will be the first one to receive a resurrection. Now, we need to talk about what resurrection means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that when you die, you stay a spirit. That is not resurrection. You see, pop culture, if it speaks of heaven, pop culture usually speaks in pretty ethereal, spiritual terms. Pop culture tends to promote the idea, let me know if you've heard this, that when you die, you become an angel. Have you heard that from culture? Tell you what, I believed that till I was 22 years old until a Christian came up and said, you know, that's not right. That's not right. So pop culture tells us when you die, you become an angel. And that's not right. That's not supported anywhere in the scriptures. In fact, fact, scriptures... Say the exact opposite of that. That when Jesus returns, we will receive resurrected physical bodies. And who can you thank for that? Jesus himself. So let's look at verse 14 in our, in our chapter. Verse 14 says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, we know what it means that, we, that Jesus died and rose again. It means Jesus rose, his physical body walked out of the tomb. The tomb was empty because the physical body was no longer in there. In fact, it, Jesus walked out with his physical resurrected body. It doesn't mean that his spirit rose or his spirit left the tomb. His resurrected flesh and bones, physical body, Left the tomb. So when Jesus returns, he will return with a physical body. That's what's going to be returning. So think about what verse 14 means. The Thessalonian Christians are concerned about their deceased loved ones. And the bodies of their deceased loved ones, their physical bodies, are are in the ground, they're buried. Their souls, however, are not confined to those dead bodies. And I want you to, to look at what Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He writes, as long as we are... So he's talking about what happens after you die and longing to be with Christ. He writes, as long as we are at home in the body, like our physical body so as long as we, are, as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. And we are confident, I say... And would prefer to be away from the body. Our souls would be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. So their souls of the deceased loved ones are not in their bodies that are in the ground. They are away from their body at the moment, as Paul writes. Much rather be away from the body and with the Lord. Their souls are not sleeping. There's no spiritual coma going on with their souls. So it's our dead bodies, physical bodies, in the ground. Your body may be dead in the ground, but your soul is with the Lord. Now look at verse 16. Here's how Paul reassures that loved ones who have died before Jesus' return will not miss out on the party. So verse 16 says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise 1st their, their their physical bodies rising out and meeting, meeting Jesus, resurrected bodies. Do you know, did you notice how it says that Jesus is going to return with a loud command? He's going to come down with a loud command. And as I was thinking of that, I thought of John chapter 11, which describes Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus' body is is in the tomb. It's been in the tomb for days so that it starts decomposing. We know that because the sisters of Lazarus are really concerned that if Jesus opens up that tomb, there's going to be a horrible odor in the tomb. So Lazarus' body is decomposing. Jesus walked up to his tomb. It says that he said in a loud voice, Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus' body, all restored, walks out of the tomb. And when Jesus comes down at his return from heaven, he's going to come with a loud shout, a loud command. Now, we're not sure what that loud command will be, but it very well may be, Come out! Come out, dead bodies, from your graves! And bones and bodies will become restored. And meet Jesus in the air. And then Paul says... Those of you who are still alive will go and meet Jesus in the air as well. Not as spirits, but with resurrected, real flesh, physical bodies. So, the hope we have in Jesus is resurrected. The second coming of Christ is real, resurrected physical bodies. We don't remain spiritual beings. Two, the second coming of Christ is our hope for restored relationships. Death in the Bible is presented in a couple of ways. Paul uses the word sleep here. They're asleep as a way to, uh, as a metaphor for death. Um, That's a softer metaphor for death. In other places in the Bible, death is treated as our enemy. It's the enemy, it's the ultimate enemy because. It is the enemy that threatens to take from us whatever we love the most. And what is that? Our life with God? Our life with our beloved family members, wives, husbands, kids, friends? That's what we want more than anything is love and that will last. Love with the Lord and love with our family, friends. And when Jesus defeats death once and for all, that means that we defeat death once and for all. And what does that mean? It means love that lasts. It means relationships, our relationship with the Lord and our relationships with, with those in God's family, the communion of the saints, relationships that last forever. Now, after this fantastic vision of, of the, the loud shout and the, the, uh, the, the trumpet blast, the image of Jesus returning in the clouds, the final image that Paul gives us is one of relationship. So look at verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. You see that? The final word Paul gives is, about restored relationships, we're going to be with the Lord. We're going to be with the Lord forever. This is the picture of love that lasts, and this is why the resurrection of our physical bodies and and, and is so important because relationships relationships require identity. That's what it means to be in a relationship: too, or more identities that are in a relationship together. Relationships required require space for us to interact. Relationships necessarily imply communication, words, thoughts that are expressed. And see, our resurrection, what that means is we will continue to be ourselves, but this time, after our resurrection, we will be our true selves without the sin without the false self that often tears apart our relationships. And I, I don't know what these resurrected bodies will be like, but I know one thing. I know this. That in our resurrected bodies, we will be, and you will be, you will be more like you than you have ever been before. You will be more like the you that God has created you to be than you have ever been before because of the sin, the fear that we often feel that causes us to act in ways that's just not who we are, not who God meant us to be. All of that will be gone. So the fear, the sin, the ways that we've been wounded in this life, that will be no more and we will be able to be the people that God has truly created us to be. So your relationships with those you are closest to will never be better when we are with Christ and with one another when Jesus comes back. Does that make sense? I think that's so important to believe that your relationships, that would never be better when we're with Christ and with one another. So the second coming of Christ is our hope for restored relationships, love that lasts, and no longer will our sin be getting in the way of our relationships. And three, the second coming of Christ is our hope for the realization of the kingdom of God. Realization of the kingdom of God. See, there's a lot of speculation on when and and, and what will happen when Jesus returns. A lot of speculation, lots of ideas out there. Uh, you might recall the multitude of books written in the 1970s and 1980s that predicted a, an imminent return of Christ. It's going to happen in the 1970s. It's going to happen in the 1980s. Um, the former NASA engineer who wrote the, the book that actually sold many copies, uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Are you familiar with that, with that book? Um, and or 88 Reasons Why the Rapture will, will Be in 1988, I think that was the actual title. And after that didn't happen, the author wrote a book saying, Well, this is why it will happen in 1989. Um, he didn't sell many copies of that second book, I understand. But think about that 88 Reasons Why Jesus, Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. He seemed to have it all figured out. Um, the only problem is that Jesus said when it comes to his return, only the Father knows that. You know, that's what Jesus said. That that time when it's going to happen, only the Father knows. He said, not even the Son knows, not even I know the hour of that re- my return. That's what Jesus said when he was walking with his disciples the first time. Only the Father knows. Not even Jesus Himself was aware of that hour. So Christians have built various elaborate theories about what will happen, um, and, I, and I, it is likely that you have heard these theories, and you may believe very strongly in one of these theories. One idea is that, that that was popular in the 1970s and 80s is the Rapture will be kind of secretive. And Rapture, by the way, Rapture is the the Latin word for an in verse 17 of our passage, caught up in the, in the, in the clouds, that's the Latin word uh, that was used for was rapturo. Um, and one idea was that the rapture was going kind to of be kind of a secretive event, and that when the rapture, when, when believers are caught up into the clouds, um, it will be kind of secretive. It'll be like, all of a sudden, Christians are snatched away, and a bunch of cars won't have their drivers anymore, and... Planes might not have their pilots, and everyone left behind will wonder, well, where did Bill go? Um, what just happened? But I'm not so sure that meshes with this description of, of Paul's, of Jesus' return. Because I don't think it can be very secretive. Jesus is coming down, and he's, he's got a loud command. <laughs> and there's... There's the voice of an archangel, and there's a trumpet call of God. It just doesn't seem like it's going to be a very secretive event. And yeah, Bill may be gone all of a sudden. But I think it would be rather plain what happened to Bill. He's, he's right up there, because there's Jesus. He's coming down. I don't think it's going to be a secretive event. And other people have thought, okay, well, this happens. When's it going to happen? It's going to happen after, right after seven years of terrible tribulation on the planet. Some people say, no, it doesn't happen right after seven years of terrible tribulation. It happens right before seven years of terrible tribulation on the planet. Some people say Jesus comes and he sets up a 1,000-year kingdom, and then God says, okay, now I'm going to have the day of the Lord, and I'll finally destroy all evil. And others view that this moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Jesus' return, and the day of the Lord is the same event. There's lots of different viewpoints. And the troubling thing is when the return of Christ becomes an occasion for kind of know-it-all boasting. I know this is how it's going to happen. I can't believe you believe this other thing. And it leads to divisions among Christians instead of this being an occasion of, of humble awe and wonder. Humble awe and wonder. And one person might say, you know, I wonder if it will all happen like this. And another Christian could say, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I wonder if it's going to happen like this. And that's all great. That's all great. When I mean, it's humble awe and wonder. But we can't miss out the main point of this and that Jesus is establishing once and for all his eternal kingdom. See, Jesus started ushering his kingdom the first time that he walked our planet. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Jesus said. I'm bringing it in now. And with his second coming, he's going to bring it in full. It's fully realized Where does that happen? That's a good question. Look at verse 17. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that word meet there, it appears as, as a verb, but it really should be translated as a noun. We will be caught up together in the air for a meeting with Christ. And that word for meeting was used for a very particular kind of meeting. When a great dignitary or when someone from royalty was traveling to your town to pay you a visit, you would send out a delegation to have a meeting with that dignitary or with that royalty person as a way of showing honor to that very important person coming to meet you. So you would go out and, and have this meeting, and then you would escort that dignitary back to your hometown where he was coming to meet you. And that is the word that Paul is using here, this meeting with Christ. In other words, that meeting in the sky doesn't stay there. Because they're all going to journey together afterwards. Where does it go? Back here. The angels told the disciples, He's coming back the way, the same way that He left. New heavens, new earth. Wherever, wherever. It is a real physical place because that is the proper home for real resurrected physical bodies. And Christ will set up his eternal kingdom where he makes all things right. He makes all things right. And this is behind what Romans chapter 8 says. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, this from Romans chapter 8, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, like receiving resurrected physical bodies. For the creation, the world was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Brought into this glorious freedom that we will receive when we experience our resurrected physical bodies we experience the resurrection ourselves. So Jesus is going to make all things right in his kingdom. That's the main point. This is what we believe. Resurrected. Physical bodies. Restored relationships. And realized Kingdom of God. And you might notice those are three R words resurrected and restored, that's us, realized, that's God's kingdom. So let me give you two more R words as we close. The first one, I think of these as how you can then act on this, what Paul says to us. The first one is this, rest, rest, just rest in this truth that Paul writes about. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. And I hope you're encouraged and can just rest in these promises. Because I know there's a lot of difficult things going on. We have church family members that are struggling with with difficult illnesses. We've had loved ones pass away in the last couple of months. There's some difficulties in all of this. So I hope you are encouraged by these words. When we get stressed out over physical problems, and stressed out over financial problems, and family problems, and failure problems, I want you to know that our time in the, in the world as it is now, with all of its troubles, with all of its brokenness, it is short. It is short. And the time in the world as it will be when Jesus realizes in full his kingdom and makes all things new is very, very long, eternally long. And as real and as beautiful as life can seem now on one of its best days, That will be just a shadow of how real and beautiful life will be when Jesus comes back. So rest. And then the second word is respond. Have you noticed that God has given us the perfect future and so you don't have to try to create one on your own? And let me tell you, I can get so caught up with trying to prepare a perfect future for my family. I think we can get so caught up in trying to live this life to its fullest. Not that living life to its fullest is a a wrong thing. It's not necessarily a wrong thing. It depends on what your vision is. Because if your vision of living life to its fullest is, I've got to experience every pleasure, try to see every sight, because one day the lights will go out and it's all over, if that is your vision, then you are terribly mistaken. But if living life to its fullest means investing in our relationships with Christ, investing in our relationships with one another, and helping others experience the love of Christ, so that they will know Him and love Him, then I think we will find those investments to have an enormous payoff. And see, that's living with real vision. Seeing what is really important, knowing what God truly promises us, and then making real wise choices as we live towards that vision. So keeping your sights on Jesus' return. I just want you to bring before God this in a prayer. God, is there something that you are asking me to take on? Or is there something that you're asking me to set aside as I try to just faithfully pursue this vision of your return and your kingdom that you're you're giving me? Is there something that you want me to take on additionally? Is there something you want me to set aside? And maybe one of the ways to respond this morning is actually receiving that gift of of a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, for the Christian, Christ's return... It's awe-inspiring, but ultimately it's one of comfort because we'll finally see Jesus face-to-face. But here's the truth. Seeing Jesus face-to-face at his return will not be one of comfort if you do not love Jesus. If you are not attracted to Jesus' love, if you're not attracted to Jesus' grace, if you're not attracted to Jesus' to Jesus's heart for the poor, for the lowly, for the humble, if that isn't appealing to you, if Jesus' call to love others, if that is not appealing to you, if it doesn't pull you towards Jesus now, when we can't see him, and when he is present and you can't see him, you won't love him anymore, you will be repelled by him all the more. And you will be cast away from his presence forever. And so another way to respond is to reach out to Jesus right now. To reach out to Jesus right now more and more and to love him more and more and to grow in your knowledge of his love for you more and more so that when he comes, so that when he comes, it will truly be, truly be the most glorious day for you than you can ever imagine. So I ask you to spend a moment in prayer with me. Our Lord and our God, Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are not leaving us to be all on our own. You are with us through the power of your Holy Spirit now and one day you will return and we will see you face to face. And you will set all things right as you restore your creation, as you usher in your kingdom in the full. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to hunger for that and keep that in our sights that not a day would go by that we are not praying for your return and that we are not praying for those who do not know you to come to know you, to know your love, to be a part of this grand party, this banquet to end all banquets that you invite those who trust in you to enjoy. We look forward to that day. We give you thanks for our hope. In your name we pray.